Welcome to the Valley Avon Podcast, a weekly podcast provided by Valley Community Baptist Church, located in Avon, Connecticut. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we do confess today in your presence that you are powerful. Lord Jesus Christ, we confess that you are risen from the dead, and Lord, Holy Spirit, we confess that you are at work in the world and in our lives. Immortal, invisible, God only wise, holy, splendid, glorious, merciful, righteous, just, you step into our world. You step into our lives. You step toward us. And dear God, in your presence today, we confess that we would step toward you. And so, God, today we pray, would you help us? Would you help us to step toward you? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we are asking the question, why is taking the next step in generosity sometimes difficult? Point-of-sale terminals will awkwardly, at times, demonstrate why taking a next step in generosity is difficult. Actually, you may not know, but point-of-sale terminals are dividing people across this land. Now, merchants have been installing new point-of-sale terminals everywhere, and it's a great thing because it means that when you go to check out at a store, you can just use your card. You can tap it. You can insert it. You can swipe it. Sometimes you can even just use your phone, and, and you are quickly and cleanly done with the transaction. But, but at the same time, in installing these brand new nifty point-of-sale terminals, in many places, business owners have installed the divisive tip screen, the tip screen. Now, business owners will tell you that this tip screen is a great thing because it keeps wages up and prices down. But here's the thing. These tip screens are divisive because TIP originally is an acronym that, in, that, that stands for to ensure promptness. And when you see this tip screen, when you're buying a cookie, when you are buying a Coke at a gas station, you ask the question, did I get promptness? Did I get service? Do I need to hit one of these buttons or not? Consumers are wildly divided on this question, reminding us that sometimes taking the next step in generosity is difficult. Why is it that sometimes taking the next step in generosity is difficult? Well, let's look. I want to suggest to you today three reasons why it might be. One of the reasons is that we spend too much. When we are spending 100% of our income, and sometimes even more, 
Well, it's difficult to take a next step in generosity. When there's no money left to be generous with, it's hard to be generous. We spend too much. Sometimes that makes it difficult to take a next step in generosity. But sometimes it's difficult to take a next step in generosity because we assume scarcity. We assume that we are going to run out. We assume that we are never going to have enough. And when you assume that you're going to run out and that you're never going to have enough, then sometimes it's very difficult to be generous. And also, sometimes it's difficult to be generous because we don't have a plan. We may not have a plan for how we're going to use the money and the wealth that we have. And if we did have a plan for how we're going to use the money and the wealth that we have, we may not have a plan for how we would give, how we would be generous. And so sometimes it is difficult to take a next step in generosity. And yet taking a next step in generosity is an incredibly important thing for us to do. Generosity, you see, is an important part of our spiritual lives. Our, our generosity touches every area of our lives, our head, our hearts, and our hands. Generosity is an important spiritual practice. It shapes our hearts. And so today, we're going to be thinking about how to take next steps in generosity. And as we do so, we're going to be examining the life of Barnabas in the New Testament once again. But as we do so, this week, we're going all the way back to the beginning of Barnabas' story. And as we do that, we're going to see that Barnabas took some incredibly big steps in generosity. To see what Barnabas did, though, we're going to have to recognize first that big things were happening in the church in Jerusalem, and we see these big things happening in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37, and I'd like to remind you of what those verses say again now. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So as we think about the big things that were happening in the church in Jerusalem, we have to begin by seeing that the Holy Spirit was really at work at this point in time. Back in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the church, on the apostles, and from that point forward, the apostles and disciples were preaching and teaching and seeing signs and wonders. And then in Acts chapter 3, the apostle Peter healed right outside the temple a lame man, 
He and John were heading into the temple, and, and when they healed this lame man, they, they, they ended up gathering a crowd, and so they began teaching and proclaiming the name of Jesus to the crowd that gathered. Well, this did not please the priests and the Sadducees who came with the temple guards and arrested Peter and John and took them away. The very next day, the Sanhedrin gathered and called Peter and John in front of them, and they warned them to stop preaching and teaching about Jesus. But of course, Peter and John said, you know, we're going to do what we're going to do because we have to do what Jesus told us to do. They were released, and they went straight to a gathering of the disciples. And the disciples held a prayer meeting. And the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit showed up in that prayer meeting in a way such that the building itself shook with the power of God at work. Wouldn't you have loved to have been at that prayer meeting? Because you see, the Holy Spirit was working in big ways. Now, the disciples were being generous in very big kinds of ways. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, that, that these disciples were united. They were in common mind with one another. They had a love for one another, and they served one another. And that meant very practically that when everyone, anyone in the church had a need, the church would meet that need. And when the church had a need, the people of the church would step up and meet that need. But this was a very big commitment for the church in Jerusalem to make, because even at this point in time, the church was filled with people who had needs. There were many widows in the congregation who looked to the church to meet many of their needs in life. Beyond that, there were poor and displaced people already in the church in Jerusalem whose needs the church was providing for. And this would become more profound as time passed and as the church experienced persecution. The poverty of the church in Jerusalem would only continue to grow. And so already by Acts chapter 4, we see that the church's commitment to meet the needs of its people was a big commitment. And people were beginning to ask, how will we keep this commitment? The Bible says that Joseph the Levite stepped up to help meet this need. His name is Joseph. He is a Levite, meaning he was part of the religious establishment. Not only that, though, the Bible tells us that he was from Cyprus, the island of Cyprus. The Bible doesn't tell us when he came to Jerusalem, nor does the Bible tell us when he became a disciple of Jesus. But here in Acts chapter 4, he is already a disciple of Jesus. And Barnabas, the, Joseph the Levite, at this point, it, the Bible says, owns a piece of land, a plot of land, a field. When Joseph the Levite sees the need, and the opportunity to meet it, and the calling of God on his life, the Bible says he sold that field, and he brought the money, and he laid it at the apostles' feet, meaning that he gave them the ability to use it as they saw fit. And the money that he gave met many of the commitments that the church had made to meet the needs of the members of the church. 
Which leads us to the fact that Barnabas' next step in generosity helped more big things happen because we know from the text that Joseph the Levite had a nickname. Joseph the Levite's nickname, according to the apostles, was Barnabas. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what the word Barnabas means. If you look at the etymology, one of the most likely meanings of the word Barnabas is son of the prophet. But the Bible tells us what the disciples in Jerusalem meant when they called Joseph the Levite Barnabas. They meant son of encouragement. Why? Because when the need was profound and people were beginning to ask, how will we do what God has called us to do? Joseph the Levite Barnabas stepped up, stepped in, and took a next step in generosity that filled the need. And the church in Jerusalem was encouraged, and they named Joseph Barnabas, son of encouragement. Now, Acts chapter 2, verses, 40, verses 32 through 37 puts Barnabas's next step in generosity last in this passage. But at the same time, Barnabas's next step in generosity seems to have fueled and encouraged all of the other big steps of generosity that were happening in these verses. Because you see, in these verses, the disciples' next steps in generosity validated the gospel to the world. In verse 32, we read that the disciples were of one heart and of one mind. They agreed with one another. And it was out of love for one another, of being one heart and one mind, that they recognized that they didn't need to hold on to their own possessions. They could use their possessions freely to meet the needs of others. Now, this would have been the Greek ideal for how society would be organized. The Greek ideal for how society would be organized was simple, that people would be united. They would be of one mind. And the Greek ideal called for the fact that when people are truly friends, truly united, truly of one mind, then issues like ownership are irrelevant. You use what you have to meet the needs of those with whom you are one mind. And so as the Greek world looked at the church in Jerusalem, they would have seen their own ideal for how society is to be organized. People are of one mind, and because they are of one mind, they hold things in common and take care of one another. Greek people looking at the church in Jerusalem would have seen the ideal of how society is to be organized living out, and it was the gospel that was driving it. And so the disciples' next step in generosity validated the gospel to the world. At the same time, the disciples' next steps in generosity were implementing God's command. Back in the pages of the Old Testament, God told the people of Israel that He would cause them to prosper, and when they prospered, they would use what they had to meet the needs of those who were not prospering. In the book of Deuteronomy, we read, but there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. 
And so now in part, this is a promise from God. When you go into the land, I will bless you and give you an abundance. At the same time, it's not only a promise, but a command. When I bless you and give you abundance, make sure that everyone has enough. And so any Jewish person seeing what the church in Jerusalem was doing would say, that's what the Lord God has called us to do, because the church in Jerusalem was obeying and implementing the command of God. And because of the next steps in generosity that the church in Jerusalem was taking, we read that great power was at work and great grace was abounding. That's what the text says in verse 33, great grace and great power. The Holy Spirit was causing great power to be at work in the world. Miracles were happening, signs and wonders were going on. And at the same time, we read that the apostles and the disciples of Jesus were continuing to preach and teach and work and share the good news about Jesus with others. And many people were becoming, for the first time, disciples of Jesus. Great grace was abounding. Great power was at work. And great grace was abounding. It's the result when God's people are generous. Great power is at work, and great grace abounds. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying to you today. Don't hear me saying today, look at the New Testament. Barnabas did something big. It turned out, well, you should do the same thing. Now, it is true. It is true. Barnabas did right stuff, good stuff. The disciples in Jerusalem did good stuff. And it is true that things turned out well, but that's not why we do what we do. We don't do what we do because it turns out okay. What I'm saying to you today is that Barnabas and the disciples of Jesus in Jerusalem were doing something that is critically important. It's far more than just a good thing to do. And so as we think about generosity today, what I want to give to you is four reasons generosity is more than a good thing to do. And the first reason is because generosity breaks sinful tendencies. Generosity breaks sinful tendencies. Now, in the 1800s, so 200 years ago, French philosopher and sociologist Alexis de Tocqueville came to this country to study what made us unique, what made democracy in America work. And as he did so, he found some amazing things about us. De Tocqueville learned to admire about America, the way that people come together in in churches, religious associations, clubs and causes, associations to accomplish a purpose. Everybody's heard that de Tocqueville admired that about American culture. But at the same time, there was another strand of American culture that worried him, a tendency toward individualism. De Tocqueville noted about the United States that our people tended to be consumed with ourselves and with those in close proximity to us. About us, de Tocqueville wrote, those who went before are soon forgotten. Of those who will come after, 
No one has any idea. The interest of man is confined to those in close propinquity or that is relational proximity to himself. In other words, de Tocqueville looked at us and he said, we're very individualistic, we're very self-centered. And he worried that that individualism and self-centeredness would eventually get the best of our society. And he knew that it could lead to problems for an individual. Now, de Tocqueville is a philosopher and a social historian. But what he was seeing is a sinful tendency that is in the heart of all people. In the hearts of all people are fear, anxiety, worry, greed, envy, and covetousness. And generosity begins to break these sinful tendencies that are in all of us. Generosity is important, first of all, because it breaks those sinful tendencies. Secondly, generosity teaches us to trust in God. Jesus told us that we are to trust in God. In fact, in telling his disciples to trust in God, he said, look at the natural world around you. He said, look at the birds of the air. They have absolutely everything that they need in life. And he said, look at the wildflowers. They're just wildflowers, and they don't even wear clothes. And yet, they are absolutely beautiful because God made them that way. And then Jesus said to his disciples and to us, if God takes such care of the birds of the air and the wildflowers on the hills, do you not think that he will much more take care of you? And what Jesus was saying to us is that we can trust in God, and generosity teaches us to trust in God, who has been faithful to us in the past, is faithful now, and will always be faithful to us. So generosity breaks sinful tendencies. It teaches us to trust in God, and generosity also sets the right course for our hearts. In the gospel according to Luke, chapter 12, verse 34, Jesus said, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, what he means is that naturally our hearts begin attached to the kingdoms of this world. Our treasures, our possessions, our stuff are in the kingdoms of this world. That's where we begin naturally. And Jesus is suggesting that generosity, the practice of giving, removes some of our treasure from the kingdoms of this world and instead invests it in the kingdom of God. And so generosity, the practice of taking our treasure from the kingdoms of this world and investing it in the kingdom of God, is also the process of setting our hearts free from the kingdoms of this world and instead declaring our final and fundamental loyalty to the kingdom of God. And so generosity is setting our hearts toward the place where they should be finally and foremost loyal. Finally, generosity reflects God's image. Generosity reflects God's image because, you see, God is the first and great giver. God is the one who gave creation into being. 
God is the one who gives us life in the first place. God the Father is the one who gives God the Son into the world and God the Holy Spirit into our lives. God the Son is the one who gave his life on the cross to pay the price for our sin. God is the one who now gives us, when we accept it, forgiveness and new life and eternal life that begins even now. God is the great giver. And so when we're generous, our generosity, our giving, begins reflecting God's own image. And so generosity is far more than just a good thing to do because it worked out for somebody else. Generosity is critically important to who we are. And now having looked at why we are generous, we have an opportunity to define generosity based on what we've said. Generosity, first of all, in general, is a posture. It is a posture whereby we walk away from greed and envy and covetousness and worry, anxiety and fear. It is a process whereby, a posture whereby we trust in God whereby we set our heart toward our true home in the kingdom of God, and whereby we reflect God's own nature back to Him. Generosity is in part a posture. But then on top of that is specifically a practice of giving financially to God through the church and through individuals and agencies who are on mission building the kingdom of God. It's a posture that leads to a practice for a purpose, and the purpose is the glory of God and the building up of God's kingdom here and around the world. So what is generosity? It's a posture that leads to a practice with a purpose. That's what generosity is. So this leads us to ask a question of ourselves. And that question is, how can we take a next step in generosity? And I'd like to suggest to you today three ways to take a next step in generosity. It begins by give something. If you are not giving anything back to God, give something. And as you give something, this is going to be an important next step for you. And you may find God doing something in your life and you saying, I'm going to give something again as you begin to learn who God is and as you begin to learn to trust God. And if you find yourself giving something and giving something and giving something, your next step may be to give systematically. There it is. Give systematically. And giving systematically means moving beyond giving unintentionally as the mood strikes you to giving with a plan. And giving with a plan may begin with deciding how frequently you're going to give. It may be once a week. It may be once a month. It may be when you get paid. But there'll be a plan about when you give. Giving with a plan involves also thinking about how much you're going to give, perhaps how much you're going to give each time you give, or how much you plan to give over the course of a year. Giving systematically also probably gets to a place where you're thinking about giving a portion, a percentage of your annual gross income. The Old Testament talks about a a tithe, a practice of a person giving 10% of their assets to God on a consistent basis. But as the Old Testament talks about tithing, 
The Old Testament is not setting the maximum expectation of us in life. The Old Testament practice of tithing is a a law meant to talk to us as disciples of Jesus about the minimum, about a, a basic expectation of us in life. So if you are giving systematically, the call in your life may be to give sacrificially. Because giving sacrificially recognizes that the tithing is in the Old Testament, and it is a law. But we as disciples of Jesus are not bound by law. We are under grace. Being under grace doesn't mean that we ignore the law. It means that we try to fulfill the law not out of a sense of obligation, but out of a sense of love and joy. We obey God not because we must, but because we love Him and we can. And so we give, not because it's a law and because it's an obligation, but because it is a joy. God is our treasure. He is our everything. And we give back to Him sacrificially and joyfully in order to build His kingdom and bring Him glory. We give something give systematically, we give sacrificially. Our next steps in generosity really do have the opportunity to change the world. Recently, we sent a mission team to the Middle East, and their job was to go. They used practice of medicine to show and to share the love of God in Jesus Christ with others. That team was able to go because of the generosity of people in this church, including the generosity of team members with their time and talents and with their treasures. And what they did in the Middle East mattered deeply. I want you to meet Rana. Rana is a person who was displaced from a place in the Middle East because her hometown, she's a disciple of Jesus, and her hometown became an unsafe place to live because of terrorist activity that threatened her life. And so she's internally displaced in her country. And she came and met with our healthcare teams in the Middle East. Now, when she came to the clinic, she was crabby. And she was anxious. And so our team member began by just letting her talk and listening. But the problem that she had was with her leg and with her foot, with her knee and with her foot. She's having a difficulty walking. When the time came to examine her, you need to understand that that it brings shame and dishonor to a person in that culture to touch someone's shoes or feet. So our team member asked her to take off her shoe for the exam. She did the exam. At the end, gave her a knee brace and a crutch and some simple exercises to do. And that was the point. It was time for Rana to put her shoe on again. And she reached down and she tried to do it, and she was having a difficult time doing it. So our team member bent down and helped put her shoe on and tie her shoe up. And Rana gasped. He couldn't believe that an American healthcare worker would touch her feet and touch her shoes. And this is what she said about our team members. We are all so amazed by the way you treat us here. No one treats us the way you have treated us. 
So our team had the opportunity to generously show the love of Jesus Christ, and that leads to opportunities to generously share the love of Jesus Christ with others. And Rana left that day happy, smiling, and joyful. Because generosity really changes lives, and it really changes the world. There is a next step for each one of us to take in generosity. What will your next step in generosity be? Will it be to begin by just give something? Or maybe this is the time in your life to begin thinking about giving systematically. Or maybe this is the point in your life where you think about giving sacrificially. There is a next step in generosity for each one of us to take. How will God use your next step in generosity to change the world? And how will God use your next step in generosity to shape you. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Valley Avon podcast. If you would like to hear more, you can subscribe for free on any platform you use. If you would like to visit us in person or would like to submit a prayer request, you can visit us on the web at avon.valleycommunity.cc. From all of us here at Valley Community Baptist Church, thank you for coming and have a blessed week.